A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 44. Jesus said to his disciples, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken and one is left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my beloved friends, with this first Sunday of Advent, we begin a new liturgical year. This holy season of Advent serves as a preparation, a four-week-long preparation for the commemoration of the great mystery of the Nativity of our Lord. We prepare ourselves to commemorate the first coming of Christ in history. But what's more, as we're going to discover in each of the liturgical readings for these four Sundays, we're going to discover this wonderful interplay because we are not merely preparing ourselves to commemorate a long-ago past event. No, my friends, we are simultaneously preparing ourselves for the second coming of Christ in majesty. We're going to see over the course of these four weeks this beautiful interplay between these two comings. Certain gospel passages, certain readings are going to focus on the first coming of Christ in history. Other readings are going to point forward to his second coming in majesty. And so, my friends, without further ado, why don't we dive into the gospel that we've been presented with for this first Sunday of Advent. And it is a fascinating gospel, one that many of you will be familiar with, because this gospel is one that is used by many Christians erroneously to somehow substantiate the claim that here the Bible is teaching what many refer to as the rapture. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the famous Left Behind series of novels, and they've converted this into a television series and and movies. Well, this notion of the rapture has no basis in Scripture. It is unscriptural, unbiblical, and it is erroneous. So we're going to touch very briefly on that because 
here we find certain verses that are cherry-picked by many of these rapture apologists to somehow substantiate their claims. No, Jesus does not teach some secret rapture that will occur where some will be taken and others will be left behind. We're going to get to that in a moment. Why don't we analyze this text? And what's interesting is that the text that we begin this holy season of Advent with, this gospel passage is taken not from the beginning of our blessed Lord's life or even ministry, but no, it is selected from the tail end of his ministry. In fact, it's taken from what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called the Olivet Discourse? Because Jesus delivered this eschatological discourse on the Mount of Olives, otherwise known as Mount Olivet. And he delivered this discourse during Holy Week. This is after he had entered triumphantly into the holy city of Jerusalem, after he had cleansed the temple. He had spent every day leading up to the Passover, teaching in the temple, and engaging with his interlocutors, that is, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite who sought to entrap Jesus. And after spending the day teaching and debating with these religious authorities and performing miracles, Jesus is leaving the temple with his disciples. And at that moment, we're told that the disciples marveled. They marveled at the glory of the temple. And it was at that moment that Jesus began to prophesy the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would come about in the year A.D. 70. Now, they leave the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus begins to prophesy. And as they make their way, presumably to Bethany, where Jesus stayed during every pilgrimage festival, when he would come to the holy city of Jerusalem, it is believed that he would stay at the house of his dear friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus in Bethany, which was about two miles from the holy city of Jerusalem. And he would travel over the Mount of Olives to arrive at the temple and to return to Bethany. And as he ascended the Mount of Olives, and if any of you have been to the Holy Land, you know full well the, the beautiful and impressive vista that when you begin to ascend the Mount of Olives, you are given a beautiful view of the city of Jerusalem. And if you were to use your imagination, a beautiful view of the temple that once stood there across from the Mount of Olives. And it was there on Mount Olivet that Jesus began to prophesy. Jesus began to deliver a highly eschatological discourse, pointing forward to the end times, pointing forward to his second coming. And our pericope today is a small excerpt from this discourse. It is much longer, and in the interest of time, we're not going to parse it out in great detail, but nevertheless, it's important to establish the context. And so we read here in verse 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
And so right off the bat, we know that Jesus is speaking of his coming, his second coming at the end of time. This is important to note because as I stated from the outset, there are a number of Christians who mistakenly believe that this passage is referring to what they call the rapture, the secret rapture, that at some point in the future, that the righteous, that the, that the just are going to be taken up to be with the Lord and that the unrighteous are going to be left behind. And this is erroneous. This, is, this has no basis in the sacred scriptures and in our holy tradition. Instead, let me just impress upon you as we go through this passage, again, context is key. You'll note that Jesus is referring to his second coming. It says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, he's referring to his second coming, and he's using the title that he often applied to himself, that of the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, the image of the Son of Man, who is given dominion and power and glory, who reigns over a kingdom. And so he is the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And so here he's speaking clearly of the second coming, the coming of the Son of Man. And what's interesting is that he's using here this image of Noah and the flood. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what is Jesus stating here? Well, he is likening the end days, the end times, to the days of Noah. You see, in the days of Noah, if you go back to Genesis chapters 6 through 9, again, we don't have time to, to dive into those texts, but nevertheless, you are quite familiar, I'm sure, with the story of Noah. You see, the world was utterly wicked, filled with, with sinfulness and unrighteousness and debauchery. And God had determined that he was going to wipe out humanity, but he found in Noah a righteous man. And he sought to use Noah in order to save humanity. He tasked Noah with with building an ark and filling it with a microcosm of the very life that God had brought into existence at the very beginning in Genesis. And through Noah, God was going to save humanity. And this preparation, this time of preparation, the building of the ark, Noah had warned the people to repent of their wickedness. And the people laughed at Noah. They made fun of Noah. What are you doing building this vessel, this ark? It isn't even raining. And so they ignored Noah and his mission. And they essentially went about their business, living their lives, as it states here 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. You see, it was business as usual. They were not cognizant of, they did not pay heed to the warning that they had received through Noah. And you see, Jesus is likening the days of Noah with the end times, the latter days. Essentially, what he's saying here is that in the latter days, that we are going to resemble the ancients in the days of Noah who who went about their business, who lived lives of, of selfishness and sinfulness, and who went about their ordinary lives ignorant of the reality of their own sins and the death and destruction that they were bringing upon themselves. In the latter days, Jesus is teaching, we are going to resemble the ancients in the days of Noah who did not have a clue even up to the day when Noah entered the ark that calamity and judgment was about to befall them. And that's sobering, my friends. Because the reality is that we, in the 21st century, are living in the end times. We are living in the latter days. Theologically speaking, from the ascension of our Lord to this present day, we have been living in the latter days. We have been living in the end times. And we run the risk of imitating the ancients in the days of Noah. We also are largely ignorant of our own sinfulness, of our own wickedness. It's become so commonplace. Sin has become so habituated, so enculturated, that we scarcely notice that anything is wrong. And we focus, so many of us, primarily on living our lives. We focus on the temporal, on the mundane, on the worldly, And we do not prepare ourselves. We do not prepare ourselves for judgment. And my friends, this is a a timely message as we begin this liturgical season of Advent, which, as I said from the outset, is a preparation, a wake-up call for us to remember that we are to prepare ourselves for the second coming of the Lord. Our Lord continues, verse 39, And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40, Then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken and one is left. Once again, these two verses are used by many Christians erroneously to substantiate this this false teaching regarding the so-called rapture. No, my friends, as I've stated emphatically, just looking at the few verses that we've considered thus far, our Lord is very clear that he's speaking of his second coming, his coming at the end of time. Nowhere here does it mention this notion of of a secret rapture. (laughs) No, in fact... If you were to back up with me in this same chapter to the beginning of this Olivet Discourse, back up with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. 
It states, and I quote, As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Did you get that? (laughs) Jesus is about to launch into his Olivet Discourse. We're only reflecting upon a handful of verses within the context of this fuller discourse. But the discourse that he delivers is in response to a query, a question from his disciples. Once again, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, remember he had just delivered a prophecy to these disciples regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which would take place in the year 70 AD. And this no doubt shook the disciples to their very core. They were distressed about this. And naturally, they wanted more information. They wanted to know about the impending and the coming destruction. But Jesus was not just foretelling the coming destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, but he was pointing even further into the future. He was pointing forward to the end of time, the consummation of the age, his second coming. And so they came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign of what? Of the rapture. No, it says of your coming and of the close of the age. The end of the world. And so clearly, if you read this discourse in its fullest context, you're no doubt going to come to the same conclusion that this is not referring to some secret rapture, but rather is clearly focused in on the end of the world, the consummation of the age, the parousia, the adventus domini, the coming of our Lord at the end of time, the coming of the Son of Man. Now, with that said, let's push forward to verse 42. Jesus declares, Watch, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So our blessed Lord charges his disciples as he charges us to what? To watch. The Greek word that's employed there is gregoriuo. Gregoriuo means to remain awake, to watch, to be vigilant, to be alert. Watch, therefore. Be vigilant, be awake, be alert. Watch, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He continues, But know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus exhorts his disciples to be what? To be watchful to be vigilant, to be alert, 
to be awake. Why? Because he likens himself to a thief. A thief in the night. You see, the thief, when he is devising to assault a particular home, does not call ahead of time to warn the householder of his impending arrival. It's not how it works. I know you know that. But no, the thief will come under the cover of darkness when the householder least expects it. When the householder is is not merely drowsy, but is slumbering, is sleeping. And he's likening himself to this thief in the night who's going to come at an hour that we do not expect. And therefore, he charges us, he exhorts us to what? To remain awake, to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be alert, lest we succumb to drowsiness or drunkenness. And it is so easy for us to become drowsy, to become lethargic, to become unfocused, to become unattentive, to not be mindful of the coming of the Lord. You know, we pray this at every Mass. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. But do we live every day of our lives with the knowledge, the recognition that this day may very well be my last. Our Lord could come at any moment and I must be vigilant. I must be watchful. I must be alert. And what's more, I must be prepared. Are we prepared? Are we vigilant? Are we watchful? Are we alert? Are we attuned? to what the Lord is saying to us? And are we preparing ourselves for His coming? Powerful, my friends. Powerful reminder as we begin this holy season of Advent. The church exhorts us to to focus our attention not merely on the celebration of His first coming, but to be mindful The church reminds us, this is a a spiritual wake-up call. A spiritual alarm is sounding and should be sounding off in our souls and in our spirits and in our minds. Should rouse us. We should be awakened to this reality. And that's why there's just such a beauty in the Advent season because we need the Advent season. It is a holy reminder A spiritual alarm goes off every first Sunday of Advent and it resounds over these four weeks reminding us that we must be ready. We must prepare ourselves for He is coming. He is coming. Are we ready? Powerful, my friends. Now, moving on to our first reading, which is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In this passage, we are given a glimpse of the vision that Isaiah is given of the future house of God. He is painting here a picture, a portrait of the future 
Jerusalem, what we refer to as the new Jerusalem in the latter days. I want you to pay close attention to this as he describes this vision. We read in verse 1, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Let's stop there for a second. Now, here Isaiah is speaking of Jerusalem, of the house of the Lord in the latter days. He's not merely speaking of the restoration of of Jerusalem, the holy city, and and the temple at some point in the future. No, he's pointing well beyond that. (laughs) He's pointing forward to the Jerusalem of the latter days. You see, he's speaking of the new Jerusalem. See, heaven and earth will pass away and will give way to a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be a new temple. And here, Isaiah is given a vision of this glorious new Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, it's true that Jerusalem is is built on a mountain, but it certainly is not the highest mountain of all the mountains in the world. Far from it. But here... Isaiah is pointing forward to the latter days when the Lord will indeed establish Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, on the highest of the mountains. (laughs) And furthermore, shall raise it above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, of Israel, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So there's this vision of all the nations, of the righteous, streaming up towards the heavenly Jerusalem, which has been elevated and glorified by the Lord on his holy mountain. It continues, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war any more. So this is speaking of of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And the the name Jerusalem means city of peace. Jeru Shalom. Salem is from the Hebrew word 
Shalom, which means peace. It's the city of peace. And here, Isaiah is describing this vision of the heavenly Jerusalem in the latter days. There will be no more war and division and strife. No, the new Jerusalem will be bathed in peace. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful verse? It is a verse that, that reflects the spirituality of the Advent season. Isn't this precisely what Holy Mother Church exhorts us to do, beckons us to do? During this holy season, beginning with the first Sunday of Advent, Holy Mother Church beckons her sons and daughters to what? To come. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Because the Lord is the light of the world. He came to dispel the darkness. He was born 2,000 years ago to do precisely that. And Holy Mother Church exhorts us to, to flee the darkness, to throw off the darkness and to embrace the light of Christ, to come and to walk in the light of the Lord. And that's my prayer for you, that during this holy season of Advent, that we, each and every one of us, can grow in our, our joy and anticipation of the coming of the Lord, and that we might embrace the light of Christ, and that we might flee from the darkness that seeks to envelop us. Turning now to our responsorial psalm, which is taken from Psalm 122, a psalm that you will no doubt be very familiar with. This is one of the psalms of ascent. Why is it called a psalm of ascent? Because these were the psalms that were prayed and sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they journeyed to the holy city of Jerusalem to worship the Lord for one of the three major pilgrimage festivals. And there are a series of psalms, and this is one of them, that they customarily sang as they journeyed joyfully to the holy city of Jerusalem. And so the response for this psalm is, let us go rejoicing to the house of the Lord. Verse 1 I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city, which is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Let's stop there for a second. Notice the language here. Jerusalem built as a city which is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up. We refer to these particular psalms as the psalms of ascent because the Israelites, because the Jews literally went up because Jerusalem was built on a mountain, on a high elevation. And so pilgrims from, from north, south, east, and west would have to travel up to the holy city of Jerusalem. And this is why these psalms were, were termed the Psalms of Ascent, because they were ascending to the house of the Lord, and they were doing so joyfully, rejoicing. They were there to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And there's something in this for us as we prepare to celebrate this first Sunday of Advent with 
the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, we are, spiritually speaking, imitating the ancient Israelites. We are going up to the house of the Lord. (laughs) We are going up to the house of the Lord where we will rejoice. We will give thanks. Again, the term Eucharist, thanksgiving. And so this psalm is just, it's beautifully keyed to the readings for this first Sunday of Advent and really, I think, succeeds in putting us in the frame of mind and heart to remind us that we are to go to the house of the Lord rejoicing with praise and thanksgiving. Verse 5, their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brethren and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Beautiful. I think very, very fitting for our purposes today on this first Sunday of Advent to be reminded that we are on a pilgrimage. Our lives are a pilgrimage. We are journeying to the house of the Lord. We are journeying throughout our lifetime to the house of the Father. We're journeying towards the celestial Jerusalem. And we should be journeying with a spirit of rejoicing, of praise, of thanksgiving for all that the Lord has done for us and ultimately for what he did for us 2,000 years ago when he took on human flesh and became one with us, Emmanuel. God with us. The light of the world that came to dispel the darkness. There's much for us to be grateful for, my friends. And so in conclusion, we're just getting warmed up. This is only the first Sunday in the holy season of Advent. Let me just read for you very briefly our epistle. And typically I don't do this, but since we are in the season of Advent, all the readings are harmonized thematically, as opposed to during ordinary time when the epistle is on its own separate thematic track. And so I want to read for you briefly this Beautiful exhortation that is quite fitting. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. St. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, besides this, you know what hour it is. How it is full time now for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
Isn't that a powerful exhortation? Isn't that exhortation perfect for this first Sunday of Advent? What is St. Paul telling us here? Well, he's reminding us that we are living in the latter days. Once again, from the ascension of our Lord to this present day, we have been living in the latter days, the end times. He reminds the Romans in verse 11, besides this, you know what hour it is. You know what time it is. How it is full time now for you to wake from sleep because we're living in the latter days. For salvation, he declares, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. But the night is far gone. The day is at hand. And so he is exhorting them, as Jesus did his disciples on the Mount of Olives, be watchful, be attentive, be alert, be vigilant. For the hour is upon us. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This Advent season is, make no mistake about it, a penitential season. (laughs) Yes, it's a season of rejoicing, but it is also a season devoted, dedicated, set apart to, to helping us to take spiritual stock, to to make a spiritual inventory, to examine our consciences in order that we might heed the words of St. Paul. Let us cast off the works of darkness. In other words, let us repent of our sins and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day and not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Let's put away the works of iniquity and darkness. Repent. We must repent of our sins before it is too late. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So cast off the works of iniquity and of darkness, and put on Christ. That's the meaning of the Advent season. It's a call not merely to prepare for the commemoration of the nativity of our Lord in his first coming, but it is also a preparation for his second coming in glory when he will judge the living and the dead. The hour is upon us, my friends. As St. Paul declares, we are living in the latter days, the end of time, and we must make ourselves ready by repenting of our sins, by striving for holiness, to be alert, to be awake, to be vigilant, to be ready for Jesus when he comes, for he will come like a thief in the night, when we least expect. My prayer, my friends, is that he will find me, that he will find you ready, alert, prepared, and joy-filled at his coming. I want to conclude 
by citing two brief but relevant passages from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I want to begin with paragraph 672, which states, and I quote, Before his ascension, Christ affirmed that the hour had not yet come for the glorious establishment of the messianic kingdom awaited by Israel, which, according to the prophets, was to bring all men the definitive order of justice, love, and peace. According to the Lord, the present time is the time of the Spirit and of witness, but also a time still marked by, quote, distress, unquote, and the trial of evil which does not spare the church and ushers in the struggles of the last days. It is a time of waiting and watching. Close quote. It is a time of waiting and watching. And finally, I invite you to turn with me to paragraph 524, which states, and I quote, When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. Close quote. In this paragraph, we find really a distillation of the spirituality of the Advent season. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent each year, she makes present what? This ancient expectancy of the Messiah. You see, she invites us to assume the posture of ancient Israel that that waited, that longed for, that hoped for the coming of the Lord. She makes present for us that that sense of, of expectancy and longing. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the faithful renew their ardent desire for his second coming. And we're going to find throughout the course of, of these four weeks, the church reminding us that as we reflect upon the mystery of his first coming in history, that simultaneously we are preparing ourselves for his second coming in majesty. Well, my friends, this brings our episode to a close for this first Sunday of Advent. As always, my fervent prayer and hope is that this podcast series continues to be a source of blessing and spiritual nourishment and edification for you. If it has been, praise God for that. For those of you who are interested in helping me to to make this a blessing for others, then please consider sharing the link to this podcast far and wide. And while you're at it, for those of you who are watching via our YouTube channel, be sure to hit that like button. And what's more, if you have yet to subscribe to the channel, please do so. Hit that big red subscribe button because by liking and subscribing to the channel, you indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content and they will be more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. And that's precisely the goal of this channel is to make Christ known. 
So be sure to like and to subscribe. And for those of you who are interested in becoming co-producers of this podcast series, I invite you to consider becoming patrons of this ministry of Upper Room Studios. By becoming a patron, you become a supporter of this work. And speaking of patrons, as always, I want to express my gratitude to my amazing community of patrons for their continued partnership and support. I wouldn't be able to do this without them. So God bless you. Once again, if you're interested in partnering with us, becoming a co-producer of this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. Well, my friends, until we gather again next week to consider the readings for the second Sunday of Advent, my fervent prayer continues to be for you in the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.